On this episode of Engineer Your Career, we talk to Adam Heinzen, an embedded controls engineer at Polaris Industries, where he leads projects for off-road power sports applications. Adam holds bachelor's and master's degrees in mechanical engineering from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities and previously worked for eight years at General Motors, most recently designing and developing engine control algorithms for an innovative active thermal management system. Our conversation with Adam is our longest yet and covers a wide range of topics from how to manage unexpected career changes within a company to what to consider when looking for a completely new job. There's something in this one for everyone. So welcome, Adam, to EYC. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Engineer Your Career. Uh, as always, I'm still Brennan Timrak. And I'm still Troy. Yeah, yes. We haven't changed. Bauman. Be on the lookout. B-O-U-man? I don't know. Your guess. You get to pick. Lucky listener. You get to pick. At least people can pronounce one of your names. They can't even really pronounce both of my names if someone reads it, but yeah. that's okay. That's okay. I like to call him two-stroke Brennan. Because you just kind of keep going with the nin-nin-nin-nin-nin. That's true. You're not the first one to say that, though. So, really? Dang it. Just saying. Oh. Justin Ayers, who we had on previous oh. episodes, actually, is the first one who told me that. So going, hmm. going back. But today, speaking of engines, actually, best segue yet, uh, we've got Adam Heinzen on the show who can probably tell us a little bit about that and all the cool stuff that he has done so far in his career. So, Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, So, I I guess no one really knows. Uh, Adam and I used to work together. Uh, He has since moved on to to bigger and and better things, but we're excited to have him on the show to talk about, about all the different stuff that he's doing. Uh, Adam, kick us off and tell us uh, how you got to where you are today. Okay. So I grew up in the uh, Twin Cities area of Minnesota. I went to the University of Minnesota Twin Cities class of 2009 for my undergrad. I got an undergraduate degree, a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. And I said I was class of 2009. suppose I should back up a minute and say I had been fascinated with cars ever since like fourth grade. And my other interests, well, we had a class in ninth grade called My Future, where it was like, um, you know, what sorts of careers are out there? What are the requirements? How do you go about getting those? And my other interests at the time were music and architecture. And I probably wasn't really good enough at either of those to excel in those fields, but I was pretty good at math and science and engineering also paid more. So that kind of sealed the deal. Um, so I knew I wanted to be a mechanical engineer and I knew that I wanted to eventually make it into the auto industry for my career path. So I went to, did my undergraduate. I Thought I wanted to do um, like mechanical design stuff, but it turns out that the class that really caught my interest was the introduction to system dynamics and controls. So that kind of then became like, oh, this is really fun. I enjoy doing this. I want to take more classes like this. So that sort of became the sub-discipline of mechanical engineering that I started to specialize in. So you were taking like an introduction to systems and controls types things earlier on. That was something that like for me in my education, I didn't get to late. Like if that was something I would have been like, oh, this is interesting. Graduated too late. Uh, 
so that's awesome that like you got that earlier on uh, in your degree program and that uh, that you're kind of able to go down that path. Um, and that, yeah, like I think I think that's a really cool thing, like getting exposure to more of those things earlier on can really help shape uh, where you're going while you still have time to make kind of a shift in your education. Yeah. What year was yeah, that class? That class, I took that as a summer class probably between my sophomore and junior years. Um, I took classes a couple summers just so I could um, bank some credits and have a little bit more time to explore other stuff or try to get out early. I don't know, but I didn't really have a lot else going on during the summers. So, yeah, no, I definitely recommend it, especially for those like, I mean, you try for internships and stuff like that. And if you can't get that, but for those listening, like spend a summer at college, it's a lot of fun. It's usually like a totally different scene. You know, I don't, I don't know about U of M in Minnesota. I mean, it's a huge university. So the summer is, I'm sure it's still different um, than during the school year. But I mean, imagine, yeah, for every, every institution, the summer is just kind of a different experience. And I think it's, it's a cool one that people should um, be interested in trying. I, I would definitely say that everyone, at least at Michigan Tech and stuff that, that spent summer up there really enjoyed it. Um, and I think that'd probably be true for other universities too. So that makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I think that's, it's a cool opportunity and it's classes are also just different, you know, especially compared to walking to them in the snow versus being in the, in the sunshine and stuff. But so it's your, it's after your second year into your third year, you took this kind of pivotal class. Um, what were your steps after that to kind of align you down that path? Did you go talk to an advisor, professor, or I guess, what were your steps to try and kind of hone in the last couple of years on that, that path? Well, you know, as I recall, um, you know, as you're registering for classes, you get a pretty good idea of what the course offerings are. Going into my junior year, that was really like most of junior year was just required mechanical engineering courses. And actually, this system dynamics and controls course was also one of the required ones. So I didn't really have a lot of free choice until maybe spring semester of junior year or fall semester of senior year. But once that rolled around, you know, we had to take like at least one higher level lab course. So I took the motion control lab and there was a robotics course that was pretty cool um, that had a decent amount of sort of control or dynamics content in it. And, And then alongside of that, I was also on the lookout for anything sort of automotive adjacent. Unlike the universities in Michigan, like Michigan Tech, Michigan State, um, University of Michigan, automotive classes didn't really make up a huge part of the curriculum. It's it's a much bigger thing in in the Michigan schools just because of their proximity to the industry, you know. Yeah, that's a really interesting thought. You know, I I mean, I it makes sense, but I hadn't really thought about it either. But the idea of like almost thinking about going to a university, even at the undergrad level, if you have an interest in a certain field, like thinking, like using that as a decision criteria, like if you're not in the Midwest or whatever, and you like love cars, I mean, California is blowing up in the automotive industry right now, so that may change. But, um, you know, in the automotive industry, for example, is going to a Michigan school of benefit if you're trying to get automotive experience. That's a, that's a really interesting thought. So you you really at, at U of M Minnesota, you felt like you really had to kind of look around and search for stuff 
related? I mean, that, that's got to be hard to do when you don't technically know what you're looking for. Were you able to find like a professor or something that could kind of help you? Or how did you kind of navigate that space? Well, yeah. So at the same time, I was lucky enough to get an undergraduate research scholarship where you know you get part of your tuition paid for to go be a, an undergraduate research assistant in one of the labs. And one of the labs there was the Center for Diesel Research, which was led by Professor David Kittleson. And they have done a lot of foundational research in especially diesel emissions and especially particulate emissions. So I got to work around engines a little bit for that. That was pretty cool. Um, I knew that Professor Kittleson taught an internal combustion engines course where you kind of go through all the systems of the engine and, you know, you learn a little bit about how they're modeled and how they work. What are some of the performance parameters, that kind of thing. That course wasn't offered. So because of the prerequisites, it was really only an option for undergraduates in their senior year, but it was only offered every other year. So I wasn't able to take it during my undergrad, but that's actually kind of a nice segue. So I wanted to work in the auto industry, but as someone who was graduating in 2009, that was basically the worst year possible to be graduating to try to get a job in the auto industry. GM and Chrysler were both bankrupt at the time. You know, Ford was very nearly. So I had to kind of assess my options and say, well, I can either try to get a job in a different industry that I'm not really excited about. But even that's not a sure thing. A bunch of my friends had a hard time finding jobs around that same time. Or, um, and I think some of your previous guests have talked about this, the University of Minnesota offered a program where you could start taking courses toward your master's in your during your senior year, which was the option I ended up taking. I said, you know, I'm going to try to get myself more credentialed, make myself a more attractive candidate to hire, and also wait a couple years out and hopefully the job market will be better then. Yeah, that's a that's a tough thing that I think a lot of people who were at that point of graduating in that time frame were looking at it and being like, what do I do? Uh, because people people who are who had recently graduated right before it all happened and then got laid off as a result of the Great Recession or who were graduating in the middle of it. Like that was a tough thing for a lot of people. And I think there are people out there who are still almost recovering for that somewhat in their uh, their careers today, even though I think we're, you know, we're over 10 years out of it, uh, the effects of that and, and definitely going into getting a master's degree or maybe people who are finishing a master's degree and decide to go to get a PhD or something like like education can be a kind of a refuge almost in times like that, because it's like, well, I'm, I'm still learning skills. Uh, I'm still in college. They don't have to necessarily start paying the loans back just yet. And maybe I can wait this out until people start hiring again. So it was definitely unfortunate for a lot of people, but that's, that's, uh, awesome that you were able to take advantage of that and to kind of explore this other area that you're interested in that you missed out on, uh, on your senior year. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, agree. I think even now, I mean, COVID and stuff is, is doing crazy things to the market. So for those that, you know, are, are wondering about what, what other options are, I definitely agree that education is, is definitely a path to, have something to do that's productive while still, um, freeing life in some ways. But, um, okay. So the master's option makes sense. You're thinking about it. You go and start talking to the advisors and you realize you can do the senior rule thing where you can actually take some graduate courses. That's awesome. So you select those. 
I guess, um, talk to us a little bit about how you framed your master's. Did you do coursework, master's, research? How did you decide between that? And what did that um, experience look like for you? So in hindsight, I probably would have been a better fit for a coursework master's. But foolishly, I decided I want some of that research experience, some of that hashtag research life. So I went with a dissertation or a thesis-based master's. Um, One of the influencing factors there as well was that one of the professors who had kind of just recently been hired into the department, Professor Zhang Xuan's son, had previously worked at General Motors Research and Development. So he was sort of the, the auto guy at the University of Minnesota Mechanical Engineering Department. You know, he had come from industry, although, you know, you can debate about whether research and development is really industry. We'll maybe talk, touch on that a little bit later, but, and most importantly, I figured he would probably know people there. And that's especially important because for those of you who aren't familiar, the, the Detroit area automakers are actually pretty limited in the kind of schools that they recruit from. So without that kind of personal connection, I think I would have had a really hard time getting my resume looked at by GM. You know, they recruit pretty heavily from Michigan, Michigan State, Kettering, Michigan Tech. I think Ohio State, there were a lot of people from there, but I knew very few people from my alma mater who who worked at GM. So that's like you were saying, that's another thing to keep in mind when choosing a school, but I really had no way of knowing that those recruiting pipelines were in place when I was choosing my undergraduate school. And I really only kind of figured that out once I had been hired by GM and, you know, saw the, you know, all of the uh, college football logos in everyone's cubes and realized like, oh, 90% of people here are from the same four schools. And I didn't go to one of those schools and I probably would have had an easier time getting hired if I had. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that's good insight too, especially for those that are, you know, in, in a bachelor's degree now, like you can also pivot at the graduate level to a different school. Um, but again, you know, right. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. If you don't know, you don't know. And I don't know, you, I mean, you learn your path. And I think at the time, you, I mean, based on what you knew, it sounds like you made a good decision. I'm going to try and at least go a network or I'll go with someone who at least can help me get connections. So that's, that's also another, I mean, a good strategy too. So. So you were able to to then be a research professor under Dr. Sun, I believe, I think is what you said. Um, yep. Um, so tell tell us about what that experience was like. Was that like a 50% coursework, 50% research? And what was your research on? Yeah, it was pretty close to 50-50. The nice thing about the coursework was I got a chance to take courses that I didn't have time for in undergrad or that I didn't have the prerequisites for. So I took a more advanced controls theory course. I was able to take the internal combustion engines class. And I learned a lot in that. And that served me really well throughout my career. Um, and Professor Sun, my advisor, he actually taught a powertrain controls course based on stuff that he had learned while he was at General Motors R&D. And in hindsight, a lot of it was really basic, but it gave me a really good grounding and familiarity with you know, what are the kinds of things that we have to control on the vehicle and what are some approaches to be able to do that? Um, so that was sort of the coursework side. And then the research side, the other reason why I had wanted him as my advisor was that he did 
automotive-based research. So my master's thesis was on the iterative learning control of an electrohydraulic fully flexible valve actuation system. So iterative learning control is just a control technique. Um, when you do something repetitively, you can use each iteration or try to learn and apply those learnings to future cycles. So something like an automotive valve train is a great example of that. And a fully flexible valve actuation system um, is probably more commonly known as a camless system. And this is an idea that's been kicked around for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years probably. Uh, the dude at Koenigsegg thinks he's going to be able to bring one to market. I haven't really kept up with that, but it's something that has sort of been talked about at the research level for a long time. Um, the idea there being that by removing the camshaft and instead having independent actuators for your valves, you have a lot more flexibility in the lift timing and duration and even activation pattern of the valves. So there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with that in terms of engine strategy um, that I won't really get into here. But if you want, my thesis is freely available at the University of Minnesota digital repository so feel free to go check that out give me those sweet there breaks. he is nice the first advertisement on the show i love it that's yeah. brilliant that's gotta awesome. get the plug in got it right there is one typo of course that i noticed almost immediately after uh, submitting the final draft and there's nothing i can do about it now so word word of the wise proofread it just one extra time that's okay i'm sure you're the only one that noticed yeah, probably. But Hopefully. that's awesome, though. I mean, it sounds like you know, you know, you're able to get some at least some good experience there working on a, a controls problem. That's, yeah, I mean, research based. So the question of relativity it, or like, is it relevant to the space? Is you know, I don't, it's research. So you know, that's I think it's fair to say that you're going to definitely in research work on some things that are probably not relevant, but might be in the future. And so I think that's that's it's interesting to see yourself reflect in that space. I mean, now that you've gone into a more pra or application space, I would say being in the, you know, you're not in R and D anymore. So you're, it's, it sounds like I just listening to you. It sounds like a person who, who's realized that he wants to be in application space, not in research. Um, and so just for those yep. listening, you know, like listen to that and think about that in yourself. Like do, when you talk about what you do, like, is it like, Oh, this is futuristic. It doesn't really interest me. Cause like when I talk to people who are in research space, they don't care about its applicability. They're like, it's this cool new thing. Like, well, and then people are like, well, is it usable? I don't care. It's this cool new thing. Like that's, that's the research <laughs> mind. People that have that mind. They're like, it doesn't matter if it's applicable. It's just cool and new. So I'm working on it. And someone gave me money to work on it. Like that's kind of the, just a broad research mindset as opposed to people who are like, no, I need to work on something that's actually going to go into an engine. Um, yeah, it's kind of a cool side project, but We'll see, you know, you like uh, just, just interesting to hear how you describe it, Adam. And I'm just trying to bring that out for those that are listening so that when you think about how you think about things, like maybe it can help you decide, should I be more R&D? Should I be more industry? Like, how, how, how do you think about new technology? Is it fun and exciting regardless of whether or not it's actually useful? Like then maybe R&D space is something you're interested in. Um, right. It can also be like doing research, even if you find out that something research isn't something you want to do, it can still be a good opportunity to like get acquainted with a particular system or a technique or some like some skills along the way that you can then use towards something that will be, you know, productionized and be able for someone to actually buy and use uh, because those research projects, and I shouldn't say all of them, but a lot of them that are based on something like automotive or something else do factor in a lot of those um, 
those pieces of a real like productionized uh, system or component or whatever it is. And so you still are able to get some experience with that. And then just to get, you know, uh, exposure to different techniques of what people are doing in there, uh, in automotive, especially there's some things that are that are common across it that you can get. And in other fields, it'd be it'd be kind of similar. It's okay, at least I've learned a little bit about what goes on in that field through this. Um, that at least gives me a better understanding of when I try to actually go and get a job in it. Right. And you go farther down the rabbit hole. Sorry to continue to elaborate on this, but like your, your description of understanding a cam system and whether or not you need a cam and what the advantages are that like going through that project, like you really dig deep. And so, yeah, maybe you never need to go that deep again, but you're, you're now so comfortable with timing systems that you go, you apply that knowledge in your daily life and it's really beneficial. And so, you know, it's in the same way that we all as engineers go through Calc 3 or a lot of us go through Calc 3 and it's like, Oh my gosh, I never, I, I hate this. I never really want to go this deep for some, but it's like for a lot of people, you go that deep you're into three dimensional calculus, but you feel a lot more comfortable with one dimensional calculus once you do it. It's like sometimes it's good to push yourself way beyond and get uncomfortable in that space because then everything that's a foundation to that, you get really comfortable with by association. And so there's other ways to look at the benefits there, at least in, you know, now that I think about learning and struggle, that's something I try to keep in, in retrospect as, as I struggle. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so you're you're doing this the project. It's starting to get toward graduation pro, graduation of your master's. Let's let's talk through that kind of transition and how that went for you. Um, I guess to to get to get a to get a real job, as people like to say. Right. Yep. So, touching a, a little bit on what you were talking about, I I found that uh, staying motivated in a research environment was difficult because the problem is so open ended, and you're kind of only accountable to yourself. There aren't really deadlines the way there are with classes, but I was lucky in that I was, I had a, a good advisor and I was working, uh, on a pro on this project with a, a PhD student as well. So I, I did make some pretty good progress with, with their help. I spent uh, a lot of, a lot of late nights in the sub basement of the engineering library, looking up, you know, really fundamental, SAE papers from like the 1950s where they were figuring out all this valve stuff. I wrote and submitted and got accepted a journal article as well as a conference paper. And those two together sort of form the backbone of my thesis with sort of some background stuff in the front and some, you know, conclusions and implications at the back. And then that was kind of my thesis. I think it's maybe... I don't know, 50 pages or something like that. It's been a, a while since I've looked at it. But so as this was going on, my advisor knew that I wanted to work in the auto industry. And so, and he also knew that I preferred something a little bit more applied. So he reached out to some of his contacts at GM and passed along my resume. The first job I got an interview for, and this was, this will probably only mean something to Brennan, but it was at Advanced Powertrain Engineering, which is not really research. It's more like the early applied phase at General Motors. And so I flew out there, had an all-day interview, and flew back the same night. That was a really long, really exhausting day. I also missed the last bus back to campus. So I had to like walk from downtown, um, which in my dress shoes, which made the day even longer. <laughs> um, and they, 
seemed like they like me. They wanted to hire me, but their business unit got put under a hiring freeze. So I was kind of back to square one on the job front, which was scary because I had the interview in maybe March, you know, graduations in May. So it's like, well, I'm going to be done with school and not have a job unless I find something pretty soon here. Luckily, there was another position at GM that had opened up, and this was in research and development with my advisors, former colleagues. So I flew out and had another interview with them. And because they were in a different business unit, they had different rules about hiring. So I was actually presenting my conference paper at the American Controls Conference in San Francisco in... This would have been June, late June of 2011. And I was staying with a friend who was working on her PhD at Berkeley. And that was when I got the phone call that they were going to offer me the job. So it was weird to be, you know, kind of wrapping up, presenting my paper. By this point, I already had my diploma. I had already submitted my thesis. And it was a huge relief to say, hey, we're going to be offering you this job. So then the next month was kind of a whirlwind getting all of that stuff figured out. You know, all the onboarding and relocation because, you know, GM was paying to move me out to Michigan. I needed to buy a car. As you guys both probably know, there's not really a good way to live in the Detroit area without a car. And I had made it all the way through grad school without one. So I bought a car and got enough stuff to get me through the first couple weeks and drove with my mom the 12 hours out to Detroit, maybe a week before my job started, looked at some apartments, was staying in a hotel for maybe three weeks, and then my had my first day of work at GM R&D. That's great, man. I think one thing that I really liked is you did start early. So I see... As a PhD student now, like I see a lot of people, I've I've been in grad school forever, and one of the <laughs> things I've seen is a lot of people graduate, and that's good, um, in that I'm able to provide some some feedback. And typically, people in grad school they they wait until like they've submitted their paper and they're done to start the job search. And I get that, like I've been there, like it's so dang busy trying to write those fifty pages and get them right and get everything spelled right and get all the dang graphs formatted correctly and get all the crap together, get all get all your citations that you forgot to do appropriately from the start from your lit review. And so you're bringing all that together, you're super swamped, and it's like I don't have time to start the job search. But unfortunately, what happens to a lot of people is they get to that point where they're like, oh man, I just submitted my paper. It was accepted. I had my presentation. It's good. Oh crap. I'm now starting my job search. Right. And companies, especially big companies take forever to hire people. Even if you got lucky in the next day you had an interview, like you're still months from money. And so if, so I don't know, it's for those listening, like, as, even this is true for undergrad and grad school. Like you got to start months ahead. Cause like, even though they try and turn around, like you need you want to be interviewing like in like you want to be accept, accepting jobs like two or three months before at least two or longer two or three months before you finish because otherwise like it's just going to be a nightmare and it's going to be a huge financial crunch because there's this period of I'm done with school to when my first paycheck comes and that's a long period and you got to pay for a lot of stuff in that period um, so 
it sounds like you're experiencing some of that. It's not like, luckily you're able to kind of interview and, and get that sorted, but, um, kind of, kind of got close there. It sounds like. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I, I was really lucky that I was able to find the job and it was at my number one choice of employer. So then I, I started at GM R and D and I was the only person in my group and maybe the only person on my floor who didn't have a PhD. Um, I was hired as part of a program called transfer of technology through people. So the idea was that I would work with uh, technology or project in R and D and then move with that closer down to production. Um, which is a really good idea. I was not a great fit for the kind of work they were doing there, I think, which isn't to say that I didn't learn a lot. Um, but you know, I, I would ask my coworkers, so, you know, what's, what's something cool that you guys have worked on that's made it into production. And no one had an answer to that question because in the research environment, as, as I'm sure you're familiar with Troy, you try a lot of stuff and a pretty small percentage of it actually works. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's like, but that, I mean, unfortunately that's how it goes. Like, you know, whether or not you're, you're going to try a new thing. I mean, cause so some, some great companies, they, they would do their own research. Some of them do research essentially by acquisition. They just buy startup companies. Like there's different ways, but essentially to be a, a company that survives long-term, you need to be th- thinking long-term. You need to be thinking about what's going to make us relevant 20, 30 years from now. And you need to be paying the cost today to be successful then if you're a big company. And so it's, it's this big question of one, what's relevant. I mean, just picking that direction is hard enough alone, let, let alone actually being successful in developing that technology. And so there's a lot of factors at play there. And so I totally agree that there's a different mindset in research versus, I would say, application-based industry of what is, is it successful if we fail? And in, in research mode, it, you can be very successful failing all the time for sure. Right. Um, some people hate that. And it sounds like that was, you were one, one of those people. I, I'm, it's, it's really coming out to me, Adam. You're not an R&D guy, <laughs> which is totally no. good. I mean, just for those listening though, but like, it's, it's good to know that. It's good to realize where you are because you can definitely pick the space. If you're going to be R&D, like it's going to be a lot of, a lot of failure for the cause. Um, and that's, that's just part of it. Yeah, definitely. So, but you know, so it, it was kind of hard to see the connection between the work that I was doing and is it even going to make a difference? You know, is it ever going to be able to make it into a car where I can tell my family, Hey, here's what I worked on. But I was, you know, starting to, starting to kind of get the hang of it a little bit. And then about nine months into my job, R&D was hit with a, like a 20% layoff and I was the new guy in the group. So this in, in, in R&D, this, this may shock you, Brennan, in R&D, we had offices with doors, which meant that when my boss and his boss both came into my office and closed the door behind them, I I had a pretty bad feeling what was going to be happening. (laughs) So they were like, look, you know, you're, your position's been eliminated effective, you know, maybe a month and a half or two months from now. But you can stay employed at GM if you can find another job within the company. So that kind of started out the second round of 
of job search in basically the last year. And that was a pretty stressful time as well. You know, I was figuring out, okay, do I have enough money saved up to buy out my lease and move back home? If I can't find another job here, like what's next? But I interviewed at maybe four or five positions inside GM. Um, one of them was like working on GT power. I think there was another one in customer care and after sales. They were, they were all over the company. Was it a lot different to interview internally? I mean, so for those like who are listening, who are in a company they're like, well, I wonder if, I wonder if I should move within the company. Is that process a, a lot? I mean, you're, it's anecdotal. It's just your experience at GM. But I'm curious as your thoughts, you know, going immediately from hiring external to then hiring internal, um, what your reflections are on the differences there. It was a little bit different. Partly the questions they ask you are different because you're, you're not someone who's fresh out of college. So they're going to ask you more about your work experience because you have some of that. And also because hiring internally, the a lot of the selection process is kind of taken care of, right? They don't have a huge pile of resumes from people from all over the world, you know, other companies straight out of college to look through. Having been already hired by the company, that does a certain amount of the vetting for them, I think. Um, so... It's probably, I shouldn't say probably, it's definitely easier to get another job inside the company once you're already there. That's a good observation that like once you're in, in some ways, like you can be in. Uh, depending on the size of your company, though, I think that can still be an opportunity where there still can be a lot of competition. GM, you know, you're dealing with thousands of engineers working there at other similar companies uh, outside of automotive. Really any big company, there could be thousands of the thousands of other people still working at that company. So any job uh, internally could still have could still have at least tens of applicants, which could, you know, is still going to be interviewing, you know, five to 10 people or however many it is. So there is still some some competition there. But like you said, like the vetting, the external vetting, you don't have to prove that you're good enough to work at that company uh, and that there's someone like they want. Now you kind of have to prove like, do you have like the skills for this job? How can you relate uh, what you know about the company to this position? Uh, you, you have a little bit of insider knowledge kind of already of what someone might be looking for, especially especially at a big company that may have a very standardized like hiring process. They may have a certain set of here's the questions we ask you know, the, the bank of questions we pull from when we ask someone, and you may have already seen some of those, especially if you're doing like interviews for multiple positions in the company, uh, it could be the same questions that you're like, you're seeing over and over again. So you may get some opportunity to work on that. But yeah, I think even though like you're in, there is still a little bit of like, a, I still have to still have to do something to set me apart. It's not necessarily to get in the door anymore, but now it's like to get, you know, completely through the door into the, the next room. Right. And I, I will definitely say I, I'm not great at the the ladder climbing aspects of the of the career. Like I I w wasn't really looking for a new position. I had to find one, you know. Um, and you'll you'll see that a, a little bit later. I'll talk about that some more too. So the job I ended up taking was as a calibration specialist, and that was like totally different from R and D because you're in the cars basically every day. And you're working on product that's a year or two away from being shipped to customers. So that's like very hands-on. You can see 
in real time how the work you're doing affects a vehicle that the company is actually going to make. And so that was a way better fit for me. So I, I, I did that job for maybe a year and a half or a little bit more than that. Can you, Adam, would you mind elaborating a little bit more on calibration um, for those listening? Because it's, yeah, it's, sure. it's a pretty common role and it's only unfortunately getting that much huger in automotive industry. And there's ma- right. maybe different systems you can calibrate for and stuff. Can, so can you just generally talk sure. about like what it's like? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it too much for your, your co-host when, uh, when his time comes, but uh, I, I will, I, I will uh, expand on that a little bit. So calibration in the automotive industry is, basically the the process of taking software and tuning that software for a given vehicle to make the vehicle do act a certain way according to what your goals are for that individual vehicle so like at, at GM the V6 engine went into 10 or 15 different products and all of those vehicles have different tire sizes and weights and desired driving dynamics, whether it's luxurious or sporty or whatever. So I was, I was in the engine calibration group. So you're calibrating the software that controls the engine. And, you know, that software might be shared, not just for that engine, but also for four cylinder or eight cylinder engines and even within the different six-cylinder engines, those are all different. So you need to sort of characterize the engine and embed those engine's characteristics in the calibration so that the engine runs and the vehicle has good drivability. And you also meet emissions and you're compliant to the you know, onboard diagnostic rules, which was something that in R&D and in academia, I had never even really heard or thought about that. And that's like probably 50% of what production software and calibration is, is just how do we make the vehicle legal to sell in the United States? Because there's a lot of laws about that. Um, so I was working on I calibrated the spark, knock detection, torque modeling control, cam phasing, active fuel management, oil, and air conditioning subsystems. So, and that was a lot, and it was really overwhelming to learn. If there's one thing I could impart to your listenership, it would be not to be surprised or freaked out when you start a job and you feel like you have no idea what you're doing for like the first year or year and a half. Because I wasn't prepared for that. You know, I had been really good in school. I always felt like I knew what was going on. And then I got thrown into industry. And even though I had a really solid engines background and I, I knew how all the stuff worked, when you're starting a new job, you know, and I think you guys have talked about this, your your education sort of more teaches you how to think than how to do a particular job. So then when you go to that particular job, you need to learn all of that domain-specific knowledge. And 
unlike in school, it's not really going to be fed to you. Um, you just sort of need to absorb it by osmosis or by, you know, having your coworker show you how to do stuff. And I found it really easy or tempting to freak out and feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. They're going to find out. They're going to fire me. But then I was in a meeting after being in this job, like maybe a year and a half. And somebody asked a question and without thinking, I just answered the question. I realized like, wait, I've been learning how to do my job this whole time. And without noticing it, because you learn kind of so gradually, um, now I know what I'm doing and I'm good at it now. You know, it's like, uh, it's like Mr. Miyagi in the karate kid, you know, where he's teaching the kid karate, but the kid doesn't know he's teaching him karate. He's like, when are you going to teach me karate? So, that's a lesson that I've definitely taken with myself. And I wish someone had told me to look out for that because then I probably wouldn't have been so worried during those first, that first year and a half as a calibrator. And of course I was probably predisposed to be a little nervous because I had gotten laid off from my previous position at GM. So I, I already coming into the job, wasn't feeling super secure about my job, but it ended up working out fine. I think that's totally reasonable. R&D felt uncomfortable. I mean, it sounded like it wasn't, it wasn't totally your space. And then you came into this new thing. Oh, well, this kind of feels uncomfortable too. Luckily, I mean, tying it back, you, you timing one is one of your subsystems and you probably felt pretty good on timing. So you at least had one technical area, you know, you could kind of hitch, hitch yep. a wagon to. Um, so that, right. that helps, which is great. Um, but then you got all this other stuff. And I mean, there's definitely an aspect of that in engineering jobs where you're just overloaded with stuff, too much to do, and you don't learn any of that in undergrad. I mean, you learn like, I mean, so when you're finishing your master's and stuff, like you're really, really busy and you got a lot to do, but that's all stuff that's going to get done. Like the thing for me with engineering is like, you have so much stuff you're never going to get done, right? Like the thesis of your master's, it's going to get done. It has to get done. But at work, the hard thing for me with engineering is like, I have a thousand things on my list. I guarantee 900 of them will never, ever get done, even though they're still stressing me out because they're still on my list. Like, yep. it's like this weird comfortableness you have to get get comfortable with while learning the technical space. And I think Sally in episode 14, she had just a great mindset to it that always catches me back of like, I'm just going to go into meetings and ask dumb questions and figure it out because like, I'm comfortable in that space. And she really approached it from someone who has that, the mindset that I always wished I had, because I was definitely more like you, Adam, where it's just like, I don't want to say anything because if I ask a dumb question, everyone's going to look at me. Um, but unfortunately, like in hindsight, I think Sally has a pretty good thought process there of you got to go into it realizing, yeah, you have an engineering degree and a mindset, but you're not going to know everything. And you got to learn through osmosis. Like you said, I call, you know, another word for that is failure. Um, and you gotta, yep. you gotta kind of get comfortable in this new space. And so I think, um, I think there's so many people that were in that boat. I'm, I'm glad that you bring that out and bring out that, that transition because transitioning into a new job is different and it feels weird. I know Brennan was, what was your experience? Well, I think this is a great like example of one of those situations where like you were applying for jobs. I'm sure the, the job description for this uh, was not like, <laughs> here's all this stuff you're going to do. Uh, so good luck. Uh, but like, like, like you didn't, you didn't know how to calibrate these things. You'd never done that before, but you still got hired for it. And obviously the person hiring, if, uh, if they've been in their job and led their group long enough, they're going to know what it takes to do in these certain roles and know someone new coming into it, like they're, they're not, they're probably not going to have all these specific skills. And so I think it's a good example of being like, you may not know that specific area, but that doesn't mean that you don't have the skills to be able to learn it. Like you're a year in, 
year and a half in, you'll be able to answer questions like just like that, like naturally. I think it's an example of where where we use our background in the, the basics and how to approach problems and how to solve them allows us to learn along the way. And that's a really important way to do that. Like like for me, so so I'm a calibration engineer currently uh, at GM, somewhere where Adam was at. Uh, when I started, I I didn't know anything about it. I, I had no idea. I don't even know how I got the job. Uh, so, and it was just staying at it and learning and practicing and asking a lot of dumb questions and just keep going at it. Uh, so I think, yeah, for people out there who are like, well, I don't, I don't know what that job is. Uh, that doesn't mean that, that you can't fill that job and fill that role because most of it is learning while we're doing, I, I wouldn't even say faking it till you make it. Cause you're not faking. You're just, you're learning. You are, you're admitting the things you don't know. You're asking questions and that's the only way to really learn and do it. And just acknowledging that that's, that's an uncomfortable position for some with certain minds. Like, I don't know, for, for certain people that are not used to failing frequently or like, I mean, for, if you're an overachiever and stuff, like it's going to feel really uncomfortable. It's going to feel, um, yeah, crappy. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that and appreciate that. And, um, yeah, just, just learn, learn to feel comfortable that an environment, um, for those that are like that. I mean, again, it's not everyone like Sally totally opposite and that she loves it and embraces it. And that's awesome. But like, yeah. I listen to that and I just got like, I, I, I get tense, like just like thinking about it. Right. And so, yeah. um, so yeah, it's just, it's good. It's, it's good to acknowledge your, where you're at though, for the, for those listening. So that when you start to make that transition, um, even for those that are listening now that maybe will transition into a different role in the company, right? I mean, it happens like five, 10 years into the company and I'm going to try something new. I'm going to go into a new role. We should get someone on the show that has done that, but I'm sure it's a very similar thing of like, oh yeah, I would, you know, cause you're, if you were 10 years into one job at one company, you'd feel probably pretty good about what you know. And then to go from that into a totally different business unit where you know nothing, that's got to feel you know, a, a similar type feeling of, oh boy. So note to right. self, we got to find someone to come on the show to talk about that. But I, I assume it's very much that way. So, um, so yeah, so I, I did that. Um, another thing that I'm sure Brennan will, will talk about maybe when you guys have a chance to talk about his career is that the, the stuff that I was working on at the beginning was really pretty stable. So there wasn't a ton to do. And I think that also made it harder to learn. But then maybe a year into my job, um, we started developing the next generation, which is the current generation of V6 engines. And so I kind of got in on the ground floor on that and had a chance to learn some new technology. And, you know, again, a lot of that was way less figured out, but it was great because those are the, those areas where there are the most uncertainty is where I think you learn the fastest. Probably I started to work on that, you know, in the kind of early stages of that, um, engine development, you know, when they were just on test stands, they weren't in cars yet going down to the, to the dinos and trying to debug stuff. So that was kind of a fun, exciting part of the job. And then right so, and this was sort of right as I felt like I was getting comfortable and knew what I was doing. My boss, who I have to admit, I did not get along that well with, which is is a whole other thing we could talk about. Um, but I'll come back to that and touch on that in just a minute. But my boss said, hey, they're they're looking to hire somebody in this other you know, roles in the company. And I think you'd be a good fit for that. 
would you be interested in interviewing? And I was like, well, I guess it can't hurt to interview. So I went and interviewed for this new position, new to me, um, algorithm design and development engineer. And, you know, I, I talked with the hiring manager and, you know, with some of the people I'd be working with. And one of the, one of the guys who had been in my group had that same job. So I kind of talked to him like, you know, what do you think of the job? Which is also something that you can do in internal interviews that you can't do externally. You can, you know, cause you work at the company, that's you can huge. talk yeah, with other people who do huge. that job and say, okay, you know, what is your day to day really like? Cause you're not necessarily going to get that from an interview. Right. Um, you know, and what do you like about that job? What don't you like about that job? And as a peer, they're going to give you a more honest answer than if you ask the person who's interviewing you, even if that person has your same job, what they like or dislike about it. Cause they're trying to hire someone. They're not going to tell you that much about the parts that suck. Right. So I decided to take a chance on that. Actually looking back, I'm not really sure why I decided to do that. It's interesting the sort of unexpected turns our career can sometimes take. But I think partly, like I said, I, I wasn't getting along super well with my boss at the time. It was also a promotional opportunity, which was a big deal um, to you know, go up a level, you get more pay, you get better bonuses, that kind of thing. Um, so it was like a good sort of career development opportunity as well. Yeah, I think that's a win-win. I mean, th for those thinking, think that it's important to also, I mean, realize the quality of the relationships that you have in your job and the importance of that in your job selection. I mean, it's one of the it's one of the really crappy parts about the whole like we do, we 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 rag on job postings and stuff like that all the time. But it's like one, the job title's wrong because it's not what you do. Two, the description's yeah. wrong because it doesn't really tell you that much about the job. Three, it doesn't really tell you anything about the people you're going to act with or your boss, which is actually a huge, huge part of not, whether or not you're going to hate your life while you do your job. And so it's like, I mean, right. the people around you in your job are critically important to the, whether or not you're going to enjoy your job. Like for those, like, and there's no way to judge that before you start the job. It's like buying a house. You do all this research, you look for the house, you buy the house. You have no idea if you have the crappiest neighbors in the world when you walk in that door. It can totally right. happen. You're just like giving it a chance to the wind. And that's kind of how it works with, with the people who you're going to work with with a job. And unfortunately, sometimes you're just going to, you're going to guess wrong. I don't know. I mean, my, my dad's a realtor and one of his friends one time um, went and sat in a lawn chair in, a, in the yard of a house he was going to build for like an extended period of time to like experience the neighborhood. Um, so I don't know if that's allowed, but um, in an internal job, maybe you could, you could just go sit in the cubicle of the job you're applying for and just see if the person in that area, I don't know, it's a ridiculous example, but just trying to illustrate the point of there's huge aspects of the job that you're still totally up for chance for. And unfortunately, when you right. get in that job, sometimes you just got to pivot. And some people, Adam, I mean, they pivot to lower paying positions to get out of that. And so it sounds like, um, yep. you know, I'm not saying that, that you're in a horrible position there, but, you know, it, it, it could have been worse. Um, so able, right. to, able to move up and, and move out and move on. And, you know, so it's sometimes it's a, it's a good thing, you know, just to kind of put it in perspective for people. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of a, and, you know, I had, all of the people I worked with, like the other people in my group were, were for the most part, really good and really easy to get along with. Um, and yeah, those, those relationships are 
very important. And that's also something that I probably underestimated when I started my career. But on the boss front also, like I've had in my career, let me think, maybe seven or eight different managers over my eight-year career out of school. And no two of them have been alike. And that's another important thing to take away is that, you know, the, the way you interact with them will be different depending on what their personality is. So it's, it's hard to really, I think, give blanket rules about that kind of thing. I think as your boss is getting to know you, you're also getting to know them and sort of what that relationship dynamic is going to be like. Definitely. That could be an interesting, an interesting relationship, like the two-way side of that, of my boss is getting to know me, but then sometimes you don't change positions with your boss changes and you've got to like re-get to know your boss or they have to get to know you for the first time uh, and how that can always change. And that is always, yeah, that's always interesting. It's always, you know, when there's a new boss coming, it's always, well, what are they going to be like? Are they going to be like the old one that we liked? Or are they going to be better? Are they going to be worse? <laughs> Who knows? Um, and you just, you just have to roll with it. And sometimes that can, uh, that can cause uh, different tensions or it can be a really good thing. For you now, you, you decided that you were get a, you were going to go to this new job, uh, get a promotion and getting a new boss. Uh, what was, what was it like making yet another transition? So, that I actually found was a little bit easier, partly because um, it was sort of in the same part of the company. So this was designing and developing algorithms for engine control module. So basically the just upstream of what I'd been doing as a calibrator. So I knew a lot of the acronyms already. Um, it wasn't that big of a shift. So a lot of that, that's another huge part about starting a, a new job is not just the skills, but also the terminology, you know, and the processes and all that stuff, having to learn that. So a lot of that, I didn't really have to relearn that much. I was kind of familiar with the lay of the land there. And, you know, I, I knew some of the people who were there. Um, so it was a lot less like starting over. And in hindsight, and I, like I said, I didn't really appreciate this or realize this at the time, but that job was pretty much what I had gone to grad school to do. In grad school, I have this control problem I need to solve. You kind of have some hardware and a blank piece of paper and okay, how are you going to do this? And so a lot of the skills that I gained there in, okay, you have a control problem. What methodologies do you apply? How do you design a system? a control system to deal with, you know, the plant that you're trying to control, the hardware and actuators and sensors and all that stuff. My education of of all of the jobs that I had had, this was by far what my education had most directly prepared me for. So that also made it a little bit easier to slot in. There was still definitely a, a learning curve with some of the processes and stuff, but once I got that down, I I hit the ground running pretty fast and I kind of just, I, I got what the job was. Um, so that what that part was really nice. And so one of the reasons I had decided to take the job was because, so one of my regrets with leaving my, my previous job as a calibrator was that, you know, we had started working on these new engines and then I just kind of left halfway through. And that's something that happens to you a lot as you 
move into and out of jobs, you're not necessarily going to be starting a job at the beginning of a project or leaving a job at the end of a project. You know, you're kind of halfway through something and maybe you're sort of invested in it because you've done a lot of hard work, but then you move on and somebody else takes your position and you never really get to see it through as completion, which I'm sure different people have sort of different levels of emotional attachment to the stuff they're working on. But I know for me, I was a little disappointed to say, oh, I'm not going to be able to really finish this. And getting back to how um, I'm not an R&D guy, I, I was looking forward to saying, hey, I developed this new engine and now it's in a car and you can go buy it, mom and dad, you know. Um, so that's something that I didn't really get coming out of the previous job. But the team that I was hiring on was starting this big kind of revolutionary technology project. Um, so the area is thermal management. So how heat moves into and out of the engine. You want the engine to warm up as quickly as possible so it's most efficient and you can heat the cabin on cold days. But then you need to keep it from getting too hot in a huge variety of, you know, how, how hard is the driver asking the engine to work? How hot is it outside? There's lots of different factors there. And up until this point, the thermal management system on most engines was really simple. It's a mechanically driven pump and a passive wax pellet thermostat. And together those just, once you design the hardware, you're basically done. There's no real active control. But GM at the time was looking into, for the first time, doing active control over the thermal management system of the engine. And so this was a really big change and an exciting opportunity. So that was one of the reasons I took the job. And of course, I didn't really know what it entailed. You know, like, like you were talking about, Troy, getting into a new job, there's lots of stuff you can't know. So to some extent, it's always going to kind of be a, a leap of faith a little bit. But it was exciting to not be inheriting somebody else's work and kind of being able to make my own destiny a little bit and to get in on, on the ground floor of something, which is not an opportunity to, on a project this big, that's not an opportunity that comes along for that many people that often. You know, usually you're taking over from somebody else who started it up or, um, you know, you start it, but you don't finish it. And I kind of wanted with this, one of my goals with this job was I want to take this kind of from the beginning of its productionization all the way through the start of production, you know, so I can say that I, I, I did one kind of whole development cycle on something before I go get a new job. And that can be a challenge in the auto industry because the development cycles are maybe five years long or something. So there's a lot of people who just don't want to stay in a job that long. But by this point, having, you know, had two jobs in the span of maybe two and a half years or a little less than three years, I knew like, eh, I kind of want to, if this is a good fit, I want to stay here for a while. And really get like a depth in a position. I think there's people who 
are more interested in breath. You know, they want to try a bunch of different jobs a year or two years at a time. And that can be a really good way to advance your career because you get exposure to a lot of different parts of the company. You build your network really fast. I sort of wanted to really technically master one area. And it takes time to do that kind of thing. Yeah, lots of times you're going to come into a project that's been going on and you, you're you inheriting something from someone else. And that could either be what you're inheriting could be good or it could be a total mess. And <laughs> navigating through that can can always be uh, an interesting endeavor. And so really, really in anything, any project that's going on longer than like a year, I imagine, uh, there could be people rotating through that depending on what people's, people's mindsets are. So, so coming in on something at the ground level is, is really an awesome opportunity. And that's great that the timing lined up for you to do that. Uh, it allows you to really make an imprint uh, on that project, have say early on and get to do something. So so if you're listening and you're like, I really want to be, you know, I really want to you know, take ownership in something, a lot of that can come around with being at, on a project from the beginning, which which is in a lot of ways like timing and luck. You know, if you weren't at the position that you were at uh, at that time where your your boss had said, hey, there's a position that you might want to look at to look into, uh, you might never had the opportunity to, to jump on it and start what you were doing. Right. Yeah. And that's that's an important takeaway because I wasn't looking for this job. You know, the, the job kind of found me. I think it probably, I would encourage people out there to take a little bit more ownership. And even if you are happy in your job, maybe just kind of peruse the postings every once in a while to see what else is out there, because there might be something even better that's a really good fit for you and the timing's right. But unless you're looking for it, you're not necessarily going to know what's out there. I got lucky because it found me, but that doesn't happen all the time. So, so anyway, so I ended up being in this job and this, this is the job where Brennan and I worked together. Brennan was, was one of the calibrators for the software that I was helping make. I was in this job for a little over five years. Um, actually pretty close to five and a half, I think. And, you know, we developed this entire control and diagnostic system um, you know, we had a little bit from advanced engineering, but we um, we ended up basically starting from a clean sheet. And I learned a lot about software architecture and software design and diagnostics. And it's kind of like what I was saying when I started the working on the second gen V6 engine at GM. Um, Starting a new project is also a really good way to learn a lot because, you know, nothing's really figured out yet. And so, you know, again, you're in that sink or swim position, but that's the fastest way to learn. It was uncomfortable and overwhelming sometimes. Um, there were a lot of, there were, you know, there was maybe a year where I would be working on weekends or I'd be up till 2 a.m. turning around changes so that one of my colleagues could work on it during the day the next day. So you can give up your life a little bit to some of these things if if you let it do that to you. And those projects that are really good opportunities for this kind of thing are also usually the challenging ones that are more likely to take up a lot of your time. And, you know, there's never 
enough time or resources. And so you have to find sort of creative ways to get the stuff done that you need to get done. It's, it's like you were saying earlier, Troy, there's, you need to figure out, okay, like what are really the bare essentials of what needs to be done? And then the other, the other 900 things on my thousand item long to-do list, if they don't need to be done, then they're just not going to get done. And you have to kind of learn to, you know, let those slip through your fingers a little bit and only catch the important stuff. Because in a high-pressure environment like that, you you just can't afford to be, um, you can't afford to be precious with, um, with things or or to try to, to try to do everything because it's just not possible. Yeah, I think that's good advice. You know, and I it's it's hard because it's it's not clear what's a priority either. Like, I mean, in some jobs, it's like almost up to the engineer what's a priority. Sometimes right. you'll have you know, your boss will help be more helpful with priority, which is helpful. Um, but, and sometimes like Tony said, like sometimes you just kind of push things off and then eventually it's that one person that's only one person that needs it, but he or she really needs it. And finally they just get enough of a fire under you for you to take two hours the next morning to do it. Cause otherwise it's never going to get done. And sometimes that's how priority gets set. And like, I think one, one revelation that I had going into industry that I really hated, but I came to peace with is this idea of people are constantly trying to set your priority. Some people do that by scheduling meetings. Some people do that by yelling at you. Some people do that in, in I don't know, all kinds of different ways. But every, everyone's trying to fight for priority of people that have a thousand things on their to-do list and 900 of them aren't going to get done. And how people find ways to do that is sometimes different, but that's why there's a lot of meetings. That's why, I don't know, there was just a lot about the social dynamics of being an engineer that came down to me, just people, just realizing people are trying to set my priority. People are trying to get me to figure out what to work on because they want me to work on X. Um, and so, yeah. So for some people, they just like to be told what to do and they just do that. And they say, well, too bad. Boss told me, I, boss told me to work on this. So go talk to him or her. And that's, that's a fine way to approach it. I, I would recommend that you become your own person and you can give feedback and say, no, I'm working on it. And it's, it's a better communication strategy for you to be the one setting your priority because then you can communicate it well. And it, it, gen it generally tends to go better and piss less people off. Um, but I told her <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's a no win situation for, for a lot of people. And it's, it's crappy. It's not, it's not a, it's not a school semester. You're not taking your IC engines class and there's 16 assignments and you're going to complete the 16 assignment. And when you do that, you're done. It's, Hey, I'm starting this thing. That's going to take infinite amount of time. I'm going to have way more things than I could possibly do. I'm going to try and get as much done as I can. Oh, also I have to figure out priority. How do I do that? I don't know. Okay. Well, what do I work on right now? Uh, I don't know. Like it's life. It's like this weird, like it's this weird thing of like, crap, I got a thousand things on my to-do list. I can't figure out what to do right now. Like, ah, ah. And I don't know. It's, it's, it's so weird being an engineer, but this is what it becomes. It's, it's learning how you are going to handle yourself in these situations. Yeah. It's, it's really easy to get option paralysis if there's so many things to do, you know, where there's so many things to do that I can't decide which one. So I'm going to do nothing. Or sometimes you just go based on, well, what's the most fun thing to do, right? Oh, there's this interesting problem, and that's one of the things that needs to be done, so I'm going to work on that because, you know, I don't feel like dealing with this other crappy problem today. And sometimes, like you said, it's the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. I think that 
if you're trying to set someone else's priorities that, um, you know, you need something from them. Sometimes you just have to be annoying enough for them to decide that uh, dealing with it is the least painful of their options, you know? <laughs> so it's so crappy. Like, like that's one of the, like I, when I was in industry and I was realizing those moments, I'm just like, why is everyone being a squeaky wheel? I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. And then you finally sit down and realize like, this is the only way it works. And you go, yep. Crap. Like you just, you have this moment where you go crap. Like this is, this is just how it works. Like that sucks. Okay. Well, I guess I realize this is just how it works. Okay. I'll keep moving forward. I think that's what I, you know, that's, I really, what I was trying to like, when I first started being an engineer, I kept having all of these things happen. Like people being squeaky wheels, people going to other people's bosses, to my boss to tell me what to do. And I'm like, why is this all happening? Like, why does this have to work like this? Like, I hate this. I hate that this is how this works. But eventually you come to realize that's, that's just how it works. And unfortunately there's, no one's come up with a better option. I think many engineers would be very happy with a better alternative, but unfortunately, that's that's just kind of how it is. What's your thought, Brian? How, how would you, do you feel like that's? Well, I would add. I think there there's a certain level of of discernment that has to go into it. That just because a wheel is squeaky uh, and you only have so much grease to go around, you're not going to be able to grease all of them. And uh, some people think think their wheels are are squeakier than others. To keep the metaphor going, um, <laughs> when they're really just wheels that 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 need to be retired and need not be used anymore. Um, so when you're always dealing with other people's demands on your time. Uh, there is, there's a, a part of you that has to be like, you know, what is, what is really the priority here? Um, if everything is a priority, then nothing is a priority. So it's figuring out what, what right. actually has to be done. You know, so, someone may be asking you to do something just because they, I don't, they have nothing else to do and they need you to do that. Or there is something that is actually really beneficial to getting the project done on time to meet a deadline, to get it out there, to solve a customer's problem or anything like that. Um, and so figuring out where that, where that all lies and that, uh, developing that skill and being able to be diplomatic about it, uh, with your coworkers is really important. And then also understanding when it's time to, to engage your manager in that discussion or, uh, kind of escalate in some ways to be like, Hey, here's, here's how much time I have. Here's what I'm working on. Uh, here's what everyone's asking of me. Uh, how do you suggest I go about this? And I think there's always a balance on that. And it always it always kind of ebbs and flows depending on the season of a project or what's going on um, or who the person is. Uh, one thing that you're doing, one person you're working with one time, uh, they may get replaced by someone else or move on. And the new person who comes in doesn't, you know, they are just completely different and aren't uh, aren't aren't barking at you all the time to do stuff for them. Uh, so so it always changes. But, yeah, it's always, you know people are asking a lot of you and then you also have to be aware of how much you're asking of other people. Um, cause you're asking for, for other people's time too, to help you and uh, realizing where you are the, the unnecessarily squeaky wheel, um, in their ear. <laughs> right. Well, I also look at it though, as something that's a little bit freeing because since it works that way, you don't maybe have to get so bent out of shape about, well, what happens if, you know, oh, is there is there an email I was supposed to reply to that I never replied to? Because you know, if it's important enough, that person is going to email you again. Like you can trust that everything that has to get done will eventually get done because it's not just you working on this. You're working at a company. There are processes. There are other people, and that kind of sets up checks and balances a little bit to make sure that what needs to get done gets done. So, you know, the the nightmare of you have a test in college that you never studied for. 
there's a version of that for the workplace too. Like, oh, there was this thing that I needed to get done, but I totally forgot about and I never got it done. And you can worry about stuff like that. But like if it's important enough, somebody else is going to call you out on that and remind you of the thing that you were supposed to do. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's a that's a fair a fair catch-all theory. Yeah, in 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 that way I think there's a little bit less personal responsibility on you to do everything you're being asked to do. Yeah, definitely. So you you spent five and a half years in this role doing something that you found really fit your education. It was something that that you got in on. Um, but uh, but the reality is, if we look at your resume now, that's that's actually not what you're doing anymore. Uh, you made that's, you made another correct. career shift. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. So well, this was all going on. So I lived in Michigan for eight years, and. In some ways, especially this this most the last job I had at GM, the algorithm design and development engineer, you could say that was basically my dream job. I got to do a lot of cool stuff. Um, I'm really proud of the project that we worked on. Um, I think it turned out really well, other than you know some maybe nagging problems with a certain tool Brennan was asking me about earlier today. <laughs> um, but. During that time, I also kind of realized, like, you know what? My whole family is in Minnesota. I'm at the point in my career now where, so we we got this project out the door to production. They're building these cars. You can go buy them now. Brennan will have to tell you whether you want to or not. Um, I I kid, I kid. We'll see. They're 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 stellar, right? So, um. But so I was kind of at the point where I'd been five years and five and a half years in the same position. And so it was probably time for me to do something else. Like I had really very little learning left to do in that job. I was, you know, one of the most senior people who had that position. I was the most senior person with that position in my group. Um, so I was like really an expert. But the problem is when you're an expert in something, um, when you've been somewhere long enough to become an expert in something, you kind of stop growing a little bit because there's really, there's nobody else to learn from. You know, teaching other people can be rewarding. And so that, that kind of position is a good place to be maybe if you're toward the end stage of your career, you know, a technical fellow or something like that, where you've sort of topped out, but you know, since that promotion five and a half years ago, I hadn't gotten a promotion and GM, you know, my area at GM was being reorganized and I went through, you know, maybe three bosses in the space of less than a year. So there's a lot of turnover there. And so everything was changing and it was kind of time to find a new job, either at GM or somewhere else. And I kind of decided again, going back, knowing that it was going to be probably a rough year or year and a half of having to get uncomfortable, you know, get out of my comfort zone, feel like I didn't know what was going on again. And I kind of decided if I'm going to do that, where, where do I want to do that? You know, do I want another job at GM? 
well, there wasn't really another position at GM that I liked better than the one that I was in. And I sort of decided, you know, do I want to live in Michigan the rest of my life? Because I'd been at GM for eight years. And that's getting to the point where that kind of becomes your career. And that's maybe the case at GM more than it is at a lot of other companies these days. I think a lot of other companies, the average tenure is maybe a little bit lower. And that's changing at GM as well. But at GM, you still have a lot of people who hire in out of school and work there till they retire. Um, you know, there were plenty of people my age who that was their first job out of school, just like it was for me. And they didn't really have any plans of going anywhere. So I kind of had to make the call. Is this going to be my career? Am I going to live in Michigan for, you know, until I retire? And I sort of decided, you know what? I would like, if I can, to move back to the Twin Cities to be closer to family. Having done the quote-unquote dream job for maybe five years, I sort of started to decide, you know, maybe that's, I'm glad I got to experience it. But maybe there are other things in my life that are more important to me than, you know, the, the job that I want to do more than any other job. Like maybe what I do during those eight or nine hours a day is, you know, a, a good chunk of your life, but there's also a lot of other stuff out there to do. You know, family and friends and that kind of thing. So I started uh, looking for jobs in the Twin Cities. And a big difference in looking to get hired by a new company when you already have a job is that time is on your side, kind of. Like, you know, coming out of grad school, if I didn't find a job within maybe three months, I was going to have no income and have to move back in with my parents. When you already have a job, you can just kind of wait until a job you like comes along and then take that. So that's a very... It's a very different dynamic changing jobs mid-career versus getting your first job. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good point that having a job gives you a lot of comfort in the ability to be choosy when you're looking to make a new job. Uh, that income is nice to have instead of being out of a job. Mind you, being out of a job and looking for a job can definitely light a fire under you uh, to make a lot faster decisions, to move a lot faster, to apply for more, network more, whatever that may be. Um, but definitely puts you kind of in a spot of insecurity there. So that's good that you had uh, you still had a job and you were able to look at that knowing the other priorities in your life, that you wanted to be closer to family, you wanted to pursue other opportunities, and were able to kind of take your time in doing that. But it also seems like a, a transition. A, 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 I don't want to call it common transitions, but it's, uh, themes that continue to come out to me. It's like engineers kind of randomly pick the school they go to. From there, they kind of randomly find a job. Kind of maybe they're lucky they have some idea. Once they get in the job, they know they got to work a bunch, so they work a bunch. But then they kind of start sitting back and they start kind of sticking their head up and they start kind of saying, "I make a decent amount of money. I'm not really." worried about that. What, what, what do I want from life? What, what do I want to do here? What's, um, what's the plan? Is the plan to, you know, to do this for the next 30 years and, and then what, and I retire, you know, I, it, it's, I mean, it's probably for the psychologist listening, they're like, yeah, they're probably in stage seven of, of Artemis's seven stages of life or what, you know, like I'm sure that these are common transitions, but like, there's definitely this point. I, I see a lot of engineers get, you know, five, 10 years in where they're, they really start to think about work differently. Um, yeah. And it sounds like you, you're kind of 
going through a, a different like life transition there too. In addition, and almost, you know, we talk about like a master's degree as a transitional tool for work. It's almost like using a job change as a transitional tool for life change. Yeah, no, that's, that's really true. Um, and like you said, I, a lot of my friends have been doing the same thing. You know, they've gotten a new job and moved to a different city or moved back home or whatever. I mean, you know, Troy, you, you kind of made the same, the same call a little bit, deciding to go back to get your PhD, you know, after having, uh, sure. having worked in industry for a while. So it is as you mature in your career and as you get older, the your priorities in life shift. And it's important to, I think, to be willing to make changes on the career side to sort of stay in sync with that. Um, you know, if anything, I probably waited a a year longer than I should have to pull the trigger. Um kind of kind of like what you were saying, Brennan. Having a job makes it a little bit easier to maybe be a little complacent and not super motivated to look for a new job. Like I knew I wanted one and then I went six months and didn't do anything about it. And then finally I was like, eh, I should probably start tuning up the resume and putting it out there. So let's talk about that a little bit. So, so um, yeah, yeah. What you, let's go, I guess more into more of your transition. How'd you figure out what you, what you wanted to do after having the perfect job um, and kind of how that looked. And then I guess what you can kind of wrap up in terms of what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, this was all kind of precipitated most, uh, most proximally by GM went through a, a big round of layoffs in like the first quarter of 2019. And so we knew it was coming and they, it took out a lot of people and that was kind of a, a realization triggering thing. Like I realized not only a, I feel like I've accomplished enough in this job. I'm, I feel ready to go. Like I'm, if I get laid off, I'm not going to be heartbroken about it. And then B, if I do get laid off, I'm going to need to update my resume, which is horrible. It's like, it's the worst thing to have to do because, you know, you're trying to make every word count. And, you know, how do I summarize uh, eight years at GM into, you know, a page or whatever? Um, you know, so that's, it's a very, it's only writing a page, but in terms of like effort per square inch, that's got to be way up there, you know? But so I did that and really for me, the deciding factor was I wanted to be in the Twin Cities. Now that meant just like I knew when I decided I wanted to go into the auto industry that I knew I was going to have to move pretty much to the Detroit area because that's where that's where all the development happens, basically. I knew that if I wanted to move away from the Detroit area, I wasn't going to be in the auto industry anymore. There just aren't those auto industry jobs here. So um, I had kept in touch over the years with my master's advisor, which is a smart thing to do. Stay in touch with your professors and whatnot. Because... Um, you know, they have access to a huge network and a different network than what you have access to. So I, 
went in because he was doing automotive research and I gave a little presentation on kind of the production realities of the automotive world. And I used that sort of as a chance to be like, hey, I kind of want to move back to the cities. Like, are there companies here that you see would be a a good fit for someone with my skill set? Because he was pretty familiar with what my skill set was because he was my master's advisor. And he had worked at GM where I worked. So he gave me a few suggestions kind of as a starting place. And I looked around a little bit on my own. And so I applied to a few jobs. Um, One of the big industries in the Twin Cities is the medical device industry. I figured, you know, I've worked on safety critical embedded software. And, you know, that's in implantable insulin pumps and pacemakers and, you know, all that kind of thing. So I, I, I could do that probably, you know, it's a different industry, but the same discipline, which is kind of one way to look at it, right? You can move within the auto industry to a different discipline maybe, or you can keep the same discipline, but move to a different industry. And then another place I looked at was Polaris, which is based in Minnesota and they make power sports vehicles. They, they do other stuff too, but, um, so, you know, ATVs, I mean, they started with snowmobiles back in the, I think the 50s, maybe. They've they've been around for a while. But, so, you know, those have internal combustion engines. They have embedded controllers. You know, they're not cars, but they're about as close as you can get to cars in the Twin Cities. So I, you know, kind of tried to, you try to, customize your resume a little bit, at least in like what order you put things in or what experience you emphasize to tailor it for each company you're applying for. And that's also a lot of work, but it it can be helpful. So I got, uh, I got a couple interviews. One was with, uh, Medtronic for a contract position, uh, interview over the phone. And another one was at Polaris for a direct hire position. Now, I don't know if you guys have talked a lot about contract positions, but one of the things with that is um, you don't really get paid vacation most of the time. Yeah. Adam, maybe uh, can you maybe just tee it, tee it up a little bit, I guess. Yeah. So just talk about the contract for position. Cause no, we haven't talked about it all, but it'd be good for, for people listening, um, especially international students who are listening to understand what, what contract contract means and what it doesn't mean. Yeah. So, and there are different companies do contract positions different ways, but the contract position is basically you are directly employed kind of by a, a contract house. Um, there are a couple examples of that. I think Aerotech is a big one. Um, you know, there are, are various others, but they basically, you know, find engineers, engineering talent, and or also other industries. Obviously, engineering is the one that I'm familiar with and that we're concerned with here on the podcast. So they then contract that labor out to to employers. And it's a way for employers to get labor to do projects without adding fixed cost because your contract is there for a certain amount of time. And then once the contract is done, there's they have no obligation to still give you work. And so you're paid for the hours you work 
So you can take vacation, but it's not going to be paid. So, you know, in cyclic industries like the auto industry, where they have periods where they have a lot of work to do and periods where they maybe have less work to do or are making less money, a contract workforce allows companies to more easily adjust the size of their payroll without having to go through a bunch of work to hire somebody or fire somebody. They can go to a contract house and say, you know, hey, we need four people with kind of this skill set for a year and a half. And the contract house will say, okay, here's what the rate is. The contract house will take a cut of that. That's their business model. And then the rest of that goes to you basically as sort of an, an hourly rate. So some plus sides of that are, you know, you might get to work on a wider array of products because you're not always going to be contracted to the same company. And also, um, because you're paid hourly, it, it can't really take over your life like a salary job can. You know, a salary job, you get paid the same amount no matter how late into the night you work, no matter how many you know, Saturdays you're in at the office or no matter how many Sundays you're VPN in. But as a contract worker, like you work 40 hours and they don't want you to work more than 40 hours because they would have to pay for it, you know, and they're budgeted. The company that's hiring you or, you know, that's paying for your contract has budgeted to pay you this much money. So that's also maybe a good option if you're interested in having um, in having a, a little bit better work-life balance. The downside to that, like I said, is you don't get paid vacation. Um, the position that I interviewed for, you did get, you know, other benefits. You get health insurance and all that stuff. The benefits maybe aren't as good. Um, there's also a little bit less income security because. Obviously, if you don't have a contract, you're not really getting paid because, you know, the the money to pay you comes from a company that's not your employer. So you're also there's less job security there. Um, and one of the reasons I was that motivated me at the time I did one of the other reasons why I wanted to look for a new job. And this is you know, a very timely thing to talk about is, you know, having been through the the Great Recession in 08 to maybe 2011 or 2012, and having seen what that did to the auto industry, and having been in sort of an unprecedented boom market for a long time, you know, the gravy train isn't going to last forever. You know, the, the economy is cyclic, and it's really easy to change jobs when everybody's hiring and the economy is doing well. It's really hard to change jobs, or you might even lose your job when the economy isn't doing well. So I sort of, I didn't want to rely on the economy being great, you know, in two years or whatever, and then trying to find a job when everything crashed, like it kind of did, at least for a little while in March. You know, that is obviously a little bit different because it's sort of an exogenous 
disturbance, as we would say in the controls field. Like it came in from outside. So the fundamental, the business fundamentals didn't really change at all. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, a bunch of companies were under hiring freezes and stuff. And I kind of snuck in under the wire um, when I started my job in November. You know, it was less than five months after that. We were all working from home then. So, again, another example of where kind of luck plays into it. But I, I knew that something like that was going to happen eventually. And the longer I waited, the more likely it was that it was going to happen while I was actively trying to look for a job. So that was one reason why I was a little leery to take a contract position because you have less job security there. And in a recession, the contract positions, the reason that a company will pay for contractors is because they're easier to let go. And so I, I viewed taking a contract position when I took it as kind of risky. Now at GM, a lot of times you, GM would, and companies will also use contract positions as sort of an audition. You know, they'll pay for your contract for a while. And if it seems like you're doing good work, they don't want to pay the overhead of the contract position. So they can usually get you cheaper and you can get a raise if you work for them directly. So if you're working out well and it's obvious that you know what you're doing and you're performing well, that can also be a good way to get a foot in the door at a company that might not otherwise hire you. One of the guys I worked with started as a contractor and then ended up as a direct hire at GM. And that happened a, a fair amount, I would say. So it's good that you didn't have to go that route, though. Right. Yeah, like I said, I was a yeah. little leery about the um, about the job security piece of it, and as well as the vacation time. And I kind of figured out, like, well, to have a comparable total compensation in terms of, okay, if I took the same amount of time off and wasn't getting paid for it, and you know, the 401k match was worse. How much more than I make now would I have to be paid at this contract position to make it worth my while? And so I gave them a number and they basically said, Medtronic isn't going to pay you that plus our overhead. Like that's just more than they can pay this position. So that kind of made up my mind for me a little bit with that position. But I also had an interview at Polaris and they gave me an offer and, you know, I could have kept looking, but like we talked about before, um, I kind of decided to take a leap of faith and see how it was going to be. So I, you know, I accepted the job. And another thing to know when you do that is once you accept the job, like you said, Troy, companies usually, it takes a long time for them to hire someone. And so if they have a if they have a job posted, it means they needed somebody probably three months ago. So when someone accepts the job, they want you there and working for them as fast as they can. So, you know, I accepted the job, I think, in late October. I put in my two weeks notice at work. So, you know, I worked out those last two weeks, which you know, maybe Brennan remembers, but it was an insane two weeks of just trying to download my brain, the contents of my brain 
everything, all that knowledge I had that maybe wasn't written down anywhere into the people around me. And my last day of work was Friday, November 8th. The movers came on Monday, November 11th. I loaded up my car and drove back to Minnesota on Tuesday the 12th. I looked at apartments Wednesday the 13th. I signed a lease, I think, that Friday. And my first day of work was the 19th. So I went from GM to Polaris. I had less than a week and a half to move four states over, find an apartment, you know, kind of get settled in. In hindsight, now that you did that, would you, what, what advice would you give yourself? Would you, would you ask for time, more time in between? So I think it's weird, right? When you're trying to start this new job, you're trying, there's this dynamic of, Hey, we're trying to be friends. Oh, you want me to start fast? I want to help you out because we're starting to get to know each other. Right. I, yeah. There's this weird question of like, well, I kind of want a month to go out west and do something for a month. Right. Or go down to the Caribbean for a week or something and all-inclusive or go to go to Europe. I don't know. Everyone's, everyone goes to Europe. I guess maybe that's after college. Right. But there's this idea of like, well, hang right. on a second here. Like I get two, I get two, three weeks of vacation. Can I? <laughs> You're but right. It's weird, right? Because it's a weird dynamic because you don't want to, you don't want to be yep. like, hey guys, really excited to work for you. In a couple months, um, right. I'm good for just these couple months, and then I'll be. There. But I'm really excited. But I'm going to be a couple months. But I'm really excited. So you know, it, it's it's a weird dynamic. So I guess in hindsight, yeah. I, what are, what are your reflections on on how you went about it? Um, so I negotiated start time a little bit. I think they wanted me to start even earlier than I did. But in hindsight, I do wish that I had asked for more time. Like, because it was kind of weird. Like my first two weeks weren't even full weeks because I started on a Tuesday and then the next week was the week of Thanksgiving. So like it probably would have been a little more relaxed, at least if I had waited until after Thanksgiving to start. And yeah, like you said, I mean, so when I was facing the prospect of being laid off at GM, you know, when they had that round of layoffs um, last February, you know, I was entitled to maybe three and a half or four months of severance pay. And so I was like, so I'm going to get paid to do nothing for four months. Like, that's going to rule. I'm going to be able to travel. Because, yeah, I mean, there's some vacations that are really hard to do. You know, if you want to go over to Europe for six weeks or something, you basically can't do that when you have a job. You need to, like, wait until you retire or if your company lets you bank up a bunch of vacation or whatever or take time unpaid. So I was kind of ready to like live that life. And then, you know, I'm going to mess around for a month or two and like relax. And then I'll start looking for a job. So yeah, it would have been great if I had had even another week, but it would have been even better if I had had a couple months. But like you said, it's, it's hard to know. I think in hindsight, my advice would probably be ask for what you really want. And if that's not acceptable to them, they'll let you know. Like they've already gotten to the point of telling you they want to hire you. So that you, you have probably more leeway than it feels like you have to 
negotiate start date. And start date's probably something that they have more leeway to negotiate with you about than something like vacation time or even salary. So I do kind of wish I had asked for more time. It was a really hectic few weeks. I mean, really the first couple months with Thanksgiving right away and then Christmas and the New Year's and having to, you know, the movers showing up with my stuff after a week or two of living out of suitcases, you know, and trying to get your life set up in a new place. You know, I had to open a new bank account, new driver's license, re-register my car, get new insurance, all all that stuff. And that all takes time and is kind of a pain in the butt to do. And it's way easier to do if you don't also have to work 45 hours a week. So even aside from like the being able to relax and take a vacation, just logistically, moving is a really tough thing. And I had it easy because my relocation was paid for. So the movers showed up and like took my stuff and then three weeks later unloaded all my stuff. So that's like about as low stress as it can possibly be. Like that was all set up for me. It was paid for for me, but it was still, you know, I remember when the movers were done unloading all the stuff, I just like looked in my apartment and it's just full of boxes. And I'm like, this is going to take me forever. I don't know where anything is. <laughs> and, you know, I need this, I need dishes to eat off of and clothes to wear to the office tomorrow. You know, so that took a, a couple weeks to kind of get everything unboxed and, and all that stuff. That's definitely the difference between starting your first job out of college or a year or two out of college or and then eight years out of college. Just the the amount of stuff, the different logistics oh, yeah. of it, everything you have to factor in. Because you're like, man, I'm I'm older now. Things are just different. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to do it cheap. Uh, right. But at the same time, like, you know, where's my stuff? I got all my stuff. So, yeah, definitely right. always different things you got to think about, especially if you have a family, too. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, so I lived in Michigan for eight and a half years, seven and a half of those years were in the same apartment. And so when you don't move for seven and a half years, you accumulate stuff and you don't really realize how much stuff that is until you have to empty everything out of the apartment that isn't bolted to the floor. It's like, oh, it turns out like two bookshelves worth of books. That's a lot of books. Oh, when I when I moved out here, I didn't have a TV. I didn't own a bed frame. You know, I didn't have a couch. <laughs> and that's another big difference from you know, your first move versus, you know, moving when you're 8 years into a career like, you know, I was making good money for 8 years. And so you spend that and you buy stuff with it. And then you have to either get rid of it or move it when you move. So definitely not a thing to be undertaken lightly. Okay, so I guess let's uh I guess we probably should start to to wrap it up a little bit, but it sounds like you're now in the in the job at Polaris. I guess give us a little a quick intro to kind of what you're doing at Polaris and kind of where your life sits now and then we'll we'll work our way towards the end of what might be the longest podcast that we've had. Look, I I told you guys we were going for 2 hours and I was almost exactly right, I think. So, um my job at Polaris, my job title is controller lead. So one of the big differences between Polaris and GM 
is GM is an enormous company, one of the biggest companies. Polaris is a lot smaller. So the job that I do at Polaris, part of that job is kind of like my job was at GM, right? It's, it's specifying software, let's say, for an embedded control module that does or controls something on a power sports, you know, a side-by-side or something like that. But in addition to that, I'm doing what would have at GM have been maybe eight or nine other people's jobs just because Polaris is a lot smaller. And so they don't have, you know, at GM, there's a separate group for each one of these functions. And here it's just one group that has to do everything. So what I do as a controller lead is I write requirements and send to suppliers so that they can quote controller hardware. So we need a control module to do this thing. Here's the inputs and outputs we need. Here's how much current we need the thing to be able to handle. You know, can you make this for us? How long is it going to take you to make it for us? How much is it going to cost? So you send that out to, I don't know, 15 or 20 companies. They give you stuff back. And then, you know, you select a company to go with. And then, you know, so you're specifying controller hardware. You're quoting the hardware. You're working with suppliers. You're then also specifying the software. At Polaris, we do some of the software in-house. Some of the software we have our suppliers do themselves, depending on kind of what's what makes the most sense for a given project. You're then project managing that controller. So you know, the software and controller need to hit certain uh, maturity or content milestones to keep up with the vehicle that they're going in. So, okay, the vehicle needs to be able to do this thing at this milestone. So we need the content in the module there to do that thing at that time. So you need to kind of set out a controller development plan. You need to manage the controller to that, which involves working with the supplier, working with your software engineer, working with the validation people. So it's a lot more project management than I had to do. It's a lot more different roles than I had to do. I'm working with CAN a lot more than I ever had to a GM because there was a whole separate group to do that. So that's been, like I was saying, at my new, when I started a new role at GM, I'm learning a lot. It's really overwhelming because you know, my last position was pretty much right up the alley of what I had gone to school for. And this is like some of that, but a bunch of other stuff too, that I don't have a lot of experience in. Now, being an experienced or mid-career engineer does help because, you know, you have kind of those, you have more skills in your toolbox, you know, you, you're better at prioritizing. You you know, this is the fourth new position I've started. So I kind of know what to expect, you know, and how do you go about learning stuff? You know, how do you approach your coworkers to ask for help on something? Cause you don't know how to do it yet. You know, one of the things that I had to kind of prepare myself for when I took this job at a new company is it's going to be like, when I started a new job at GM and I felt like I didn't know what I was doing for a while and it's going to be uncomfortable. And am I ready for that? 
And I decided I was. And so you kind of repeat that to yourself every so often when things feel overwhelming. Like, actually, you know what? Those three other jobs I started and it felt this way, it was fine. You know, it's going to be okay. And that's not something I would have been able to do at an earlier point in my career. And also, having worked in one position for five and a half years and gotten really good at it, that gives you that confidence. Like, you know what? I'm a smart guy. I'm a good engineer. I don't know this specific stuff yet, but I will, and I will, I will be good at this in two years' time or whatever. And so, yeah, it's it's a very different position than what I had before. But like I said, I'm learning a lot. Polaris moves a lot faster than GM does, just kind of because of what industry it's in. There's a lot less regulation, so it's a lot more fast and loose. That's a very, you know, the project that took me five years at GM would take Polaris two or less, probably, because that's the the pace at which that industry moves. That's their the length of their you know development cycle, and I've gotten to you know gotten to know my new coworkers a little bit. That's another big thing when you come into a new job is okay. Who are like people? people have job titles, but then also there's kind of like that underground network of who knows what and who knows how to like work the organization to get certain things done. So learning who those people are and getting to know them is also an important thing. Like what, what's kind of the, the black market of power or, um, you know, who, who knows how to, how to grease the right skids. Yeah. Some of the best advice I, I think I've ever gotten or and try to give too is when you start that job and there's that initial start job lull where it seems like you should be doing something, but you're not doing a lot. I go talk to people, like go just yep. meet people, go learn names so that when you, you'll get busy, don't worry. They, they didn't have an empty <laughs> position for a reason. They, 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 yep. they have plenty of work to do. It will get busy. And at that time, having the, having the network start to build up is, is a, is a good time. So yeah, it's, it's 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 it must have been weird going from you know being busy at GM and then just doing nothing. But it sounds like you're able to to build up your uh, your network during that time, and it's 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 good because you I mean you realize being an experienced engineer that that network is 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 important to have. Yeah, and that's that's something that I didn't know when I was starting at GM. So it's it's very interesting starting at a new company, having worked somewhere else for eight years because this is only the second company I've ever worked at you know, in my quote unquote real job type of career. And so I just know a lot more about what is it like to have a full-time job as an engineer? Yeah. Some of those people skills, um, you know, how to talk to and deal with your manager, how to, like we talked about earlier, um, if you need something from somebody, how to encourage them to get that to you without, you know, being a jerk about it. Um, and those things just kind of come with time and you're not really going to have those when you start your first job. Um, although hopefully if you listen to enough episodes of this podcast, there's the plug boys. Um, God, the second one, you're so good at this. Right. I mean, look, this, this is not my first podcast rodeo. I, I, I know what the deal is, but no. So like if, if, if you listen to this podcast enough, you hear all these different people's experiences, this is kind of. I think Brennan and Troy, your your goal with this is to 
at least give people a heads up, like, here's what to look for and to pay attention to when you start your job. Things that, you know, that I didn't know when I was starting my first job out of school. You know, things like it's not homework because there's not an answer key that the professor has somewhere. You know, you guys have talked about that a whole bunch. You know, the interpersonal stuff, time management, all of that stuff is is important. And you don't you have to kind of learn it's important on the job in addition to learning that domain specific knowledge. But hopefully, as you know, as a listener who's starting out in their career, you, you know, in listening to this podcast, you're, you know, a little bit better, like, at least to expect to need to learn those things on the job. And maybe to be proactive and to go out of your way and seeking that stuff out. With that, we, we'd normally ask you as we come to the end here, do you have any last minute advice? But I, but I think you I think you've just said it all right there. You've given us uh, uh, so much awesome stuff tonight on uh, you know all the lessons you've learned, and, and it's been awesome having you on here. It was it was awesome working with you in person, uh, oh, and shucks. and awesome to have you on here. Yeah, you're you guys are very welcome. It was uh, it was fun to come on. I haven't worked at GM for so long. I I definitely have had a lot of these kinds of thoughts. And it's, it's nice that you guys have a forum like this where people can share those experiences. I hope, uh, Brian and I hope you don't trash talk me specifically too much when, uh, when you talk about your, your career. Um, but, uh, I could, no, I, I could I, never, I could never do it. Okay, good, good. Yeah. Thanks. Right, thanks for your time. See you thanks guys. for coming on him. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll maybe talk to you again soon. Okay, for sure. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Adam is full of great insights. He he was full of them when I worked with him, uh, and he's still got it going on now. He, he's full of lots of stuff, but it's all good stuff. And it was it was awesome having him on. Like so many good reflection thoughts that he has about where he's at now and how he's gotten there. It was, it was really awesome to talk to him. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, I mean, it definitely played out in the duration. I mean, it felt natural, but it's just because there was just a lot of good stuff there to talk about. Like I just wanted to keep elaborating, and I just couldn't. I couldn't cut them off because I wanted to keep it going. And so, it turned out to be a longer podcast. But you know, ironically, we talked about this at the the recap of the last episode. But like, what do you, you know? I don't know. Maybe maybe two hours for some. I don't know. Or we just let it go and people talk. And yeah, I don't know. I thought I thought it was really great though too. I mean, I think his one of the things I really really enjoyed about Adam that I think a lot of engineers, regardless of where they are in their career, could really learn from is awareness of the business around you and what that means for your moves. Um, So he talked a lot about how he was like, well, business is cyclical. I've been in this good role for a long time. It's probably going to get bad. I got to think about this. And that bad, you know, it just goes up and down. And I thought, I thought he did an exceptional job while still being technical of keeping his hand on the pulse of the business so that when he made moves and did different things, it wasn't at too bad of a time. I mean, it, it could, it probably just because the 09 burn, you know, coming into it hard like that and realizing that some things you can't control. And so you got to control what you can control. And, you know, maybe he just came out of that swinging and really learning. I don't know. I just, I think, I think that's that situational awareness um, in your position is, is a really, really good idea for every engineer that's, that's listening and beyond. Yeah, I totally agree. You can't just like have your head down every day, not really paying attention to to what's going on and in your career and the greater world around you and what that might mean for your job or when you you do put your head up and you decide you want to move and you've you've you know missed an opportunity or something's gone by. I think he talked about 
how in your first year, year and a half job, you might not even really know what you're doing. You're still learning. And I think that's an important thing for people to realize is that when you start a job, uh, it's likely that you do not have all the necessary skills for it, but you're still hired to do that because you're expected to be able to learn and to be able to, to figure it out over time. And that's an important thing because you might get into something and think that you're way over your head. Uh, but if you stick at it, uh, you'll eventually be able in a, you know six months, a year, year and a half, or whatever, to just have the answers to questions second nature and just to do your job really well. And especially as like Adam was is jumping around from from different roles, only one of those was one that he felt like he really was uh, specialized in because of his education background. And so you always have to realize that like you can perform really well at lots of different roles as long as you have uh, kind of a learning mindset around it and are open to that. Yep. A lot of good insight there. So thanks, Adam. Yeah. If you're listening, awesome. if you listened all the way through the recap of your own episode, thank you. Thanks for listening. All, all right. right. Good to talk to you. We'll talk to y'all later, everyone. Thanks for all listening. Right. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engineer Your Career with Troy Bauman and Brennan Timrack. For more information about the show, visit our website at eycpodcast.com. There you can find show notes for each episode and get in touch with Troy and I. If you or someone you know are an engineer with an interesting or even not so interesting career journey and would like to be on the show, go on the website, send us a short bio, and we may just invite you to come on and share your story. And finally, if you want to show your support, please rate, review, like, or subscribe to the show on your podcast player of choice.